Our, our scripture reading today is Psalm 33, and Caleb is going to come and read that for us today. In honor of God's word, I'd invite you all to stand. Good morning. Listen as I read. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Let him sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves the righteous and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fill the Lord, fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out in all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its strength, by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver his soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. We're in a series called Psalms of the People. And um, the, the, the book of Psalms, you know, if, if you open your Bible, maybe you've done this before, but if you open your Bible and just kind of let it fall open to the middle, it's likely that you're going to hit Psalms. It's kind of right, right in the middle uh, of, of the, the Bible as we have it bound uh, in, in our English copies. And it's a, it's a really large uh, book of the Bible, uh, 150 Psalms. And it was considered the songbook of, of Israel. It's uh, like, you know, maybe you're familiar with the, the idea of a hymn book. Uh, it's basically what it was for the nation of Israel. And it's actually broken up into five separate books. So as you read through the Psalms, you'll occasionally see something that will say book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. And so they, they were broken up into, into various books. The various Psalms were sung at various times. Uh, they touch on all kinds of different life circumstances, uh, both the joys, the highest of highs, and the sorrows, the lowest of, of lows. Uh, some Psalms really wade into the questions about what God's doing. Uh, most psalms have a rhythm to them that, that, that end with some sense of, of eagerness or hopefulness. Uh, there's a few psalms that, that don't. A few psalms that end uh, with a lot of questions, uh, kind of end in the darkness. And so it's quite, quite a gift uh, to God's people that they had this songbook. Now we live here in the year 2021, you know, we live at a time where, 
I mean, the production of music is just absolutely incredible. I mean, there are, there are so many songs. They're, they're just, and it feels like there's always new songs coming out. And it's amazing, the creativity of songwriters. And it's just, it's such a gift uh, to the church. I, I mean, I, I didn't track it, but, you know, many of the songs that we sang this morning are, are relatively new songs. And that's something that the people of God should, uh, should celebrate. That, that, that's a great thing. We, we do recognize that a strength can become a weakness uh, in the sense that uh, one songwriter, a, a Christian guy, said that uh, the church right now is growing up for the first time. We have a generation growing up that doesn't have a songbook, that there's not a collection of, like, staples. Uh, you know, what, what, one of the dangers with this many new songs and when they're this good is that they can shuffle out pretty quickly. And so a song from like four years ago, it's like, oh, that's old. <laughs> and it's like, a four-year-old song's old? But it's like, you know, they, they kind of cycle out. And, uh, and I, when I heard that songwriter say that, I, I, I thought, you know, I hadn't thought about that before, but that's, that's true. Like, we, we, uh, we, we don't have uh, as much of a shared songbook. Um, but Israel did. And that's what we have uh, in, in, in these 150 psalms. And they are a gift. Uh, they were a gift to the nation of Israel, and they are a gift uh, to us. Today we're looking at Psalm 33, uh, and throughout this series we're going to be, uh, there's just 10 weeks long, but we're going to be looking at different psalms, and uh, the back half of this is going to be psalms uh, that are selected from, songs, from psalms that you have submitted. And so we've received quite a few submissions from you, suggestions of psalms that have resonated with you or that have left you with questions, um, songs that have encouraged you, that, that various, various reasons why you've submitted them, and so we're going to be uh, addressing those um, in, in a couple weeks. Um, but Psalm 33 is, is, one, is one of my picks, and uh, one of the reasons why uh, I'm, I, I uh, picked this psalm is because it re- reorients my hopes. Um, it is a, a psalm that I have uh, referred to many, many times in, in my life, and um, you know, I, 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 like you, you know, I recognize that life can be incredibly exciting. Life can just be like, can't wait to get out of bed and go after it today. Like, you know, so, so, sometimes that's, that's where life's at. Uh, sometimes life is intensely boring. Uh, so, sometimes life uh, can be scary. Sometimes life can be disappointing. Life can be hard. Life can be overwhelming. L- life has all of these different dynamics at play. Uh, so w- where do you find your hope? W- where do you find your hope? Like, you, you don't, you know, most of us don't wake up the exact same way every day. We don't go through our, uh, the same kind of view of the world every year of our lives. W- where, where do you find your hope? Uh, well, Psalm 33 uh, invites us to consider, invites us to consider what we are looking at and who is uh, looking at us. So it's a longer psalm, 22 verses, and uh, let's, uh, let's see what it has to say. First, uh, why the people praise. Uh, so the author of this psalm is not fully known. Uh, historically, it's been considered a, a psalm of David, but that's not 100% uh, for sure. But regardless, l- l- look at how it starts off. V- verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. The, the, the praise of God's people is right. It's right, and we're going to see, and it, it's beautiful. It's loud. Look, 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 at, look at verses 1 and 2. Not only does he say, praise befits the upright, but verse 2, Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So that first idea is that praise befits the upright. If you say, what is the word, I, you know, we don't use the word befits very often, I don't think. And you might say, what, like, what does that mean? It's, it's simply saying it, it's a perfect fit. 
It, it is a natural response. You know, maybe you've like, like bought a shirt and put it on and it's just like, it just, it like fits you perfectly. You know, maybe you say something like, I, I was made for this shirt. This shirt just, it just sits the way I like shirts to sit. Or maybe you have a job or had a job and you're like, I think, I think that job was made for me. Like that is my dream job. Like th- th- this is just the perfect fit. The, the psalmist starts off Psalm 33 by saying, that's what the praise of the God of heaven is for the people of God. It is a perfect fit. It, it would be right for us to say, we were made for this. We were made for this. This, is, this, is a, this fits us perfectly. In verse 2, he talks about three instruments. The lyre, the harp, and a ten-stringed instrument. It, it, it could be a harp that's ten-stringed. So it's either, one, it's either two instruments or three instruments. But again, that, that that's, doesn't really matter. The point is, as he gets to in verse 3, give those instruments to people who know what they're doing. Skillful. Skillful people. Take these instruments. In verse 3, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on these instruments. Take them, and you, you, maybe you're aware of this, but as you, if you were to read through the Psalms, the, the, the variety of instruments that, that the nation of Israel used, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very, very wide. They used a lot of instruments uh, in their worship. And the point here is, like, give them to the people who know what they're doing and, 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 and let, them, let them lead us. Get, get creative. It actually references an, a new song. And we're going to talk more about a new song next, next week. But as the psalmist is, is, is inviting us here, he says, it's right for us to praise. It fits us. That's a natural response. Get out the instruments. Give them to the skillful people. Let them play the songs that we know with skill. Let them write new songs. You know, and, and for me, this, this, is, this is quite helpful because maybe you've heard some of the criticism of new songs. Uh, maybe you've heard criticism of the instrumentation that is used. People, some, you know, some people don't, don't, like, don't like drums, or maybe you don't like electric guitars, or there, there's a whole wide variety of, of complaints that, that, that come along the way in regard to music. And you, you, you look at this and you're like, oh no, they, they, they want to get out all the instruments and give them to the skillful people and say, play those instruments and get creative, write some new songs. Maybe you're a person who sings some of these new songs, and you're like, oh, they're so repetitive. You know, there's a little joke out there that all the songs are 7-Eleven. You say the same seven words 11 times. And it's like this complaint about repetitive singing. Well, have you read the psalms? Like, read the last 10 psalms. They're, They're almost all short. Read the last 10 psalms this afternoon, and you tell me if the psalmist thinks that repetition has value. The psalmist repeats himself all the time. And so in some ways, this is like a gift to just be like, just, just take off the judgment coat, you know? Like, just in, enjoy this music. That the psalmist says, it's right for us to praise the God of heaven. Get out the instruments. Give them to the people who know what they're doing. Let them get creative. Let them sing new songs. And then rip the roof off. Like, get loud. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. With loud shouts. These phrases, verse 1 also references being loud. And these phrases are really, really straightforward. In the Greek, they're very, very simple. There's only one question, and it's kind of technical. And the question is, how loud should we get? That's it. 
That's the only question. How loud should we get? And the answer is really, really loud. That's the answer. In in verse 1, when it talks about this idea of responding with with loudness, with with shouting, that that Hebrew word for shout, it's, 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 it's in the category of volume. And so the psalmist is just starting off by saying, turn up the volume. Turn up the volume on your praise. And then when you get to verse 3, there's a, there's a phrase that says, with loud shouts. Now you might think that your know, shouts and shouts, those are the same Hebrew word, but they're not. The first one has to do with volume. The last one in verse 3 is a Hebrew word that has to do with a battle cry or a war cry. And that is more an invitation to passion. And so the first one says, do it loud. And the last one is saying, do it loud with passion. Like, let it flow out of you. This is the right response to the God of heaven. Maybe some of you know that 500 years ago, Martin Luther said we should sing lustily. We should sing lustily. Now, I don't know that that would go over real well in the year 2021. But the idea is, like, this is the posture of God's people. That there should be an energy and an eagerness to our singing. Now, should it be for every single song? Probably not. Some of these psalms are what are called laments. And laments are songs of weeping. Songs where our hearts are torn open. Where we're maybe not even singing because we're so broken before the God of heaven. So as the psalmist writes this, he's not saying every single song needs to be pinned uh, to the highest volume. Not every single song rips the roof off. But man, some of them should. Some of them should. Your, your passion and your volume should be evident when you're praising the God of heaven. Not every song every time, but that's a right response. As we are praising the God of heaven, it's, it's, it's fitting. Get out the instruments, get creative with the instruments, and, and play them loud. But you might say, why? Like, just, just because the three letters that spell God? Like, Okay, I mean, get out there, get creative, sing, sing loud, sing with passion. But why? Well, the psalmist wants to answer that question too. And in verse 4, he starts to answer it. And this is what he says. He says, he uses the, the, the word that's uh, translated that we know as, as Jehovah. So talking about the covenant-keeping God. And he says, Jehovah's word is right. For the word of Jehovah is upright. It's, it's, it, it has the idea of being like fundamentally true. It, it, it's right. Then he says Jehovah's work is faithful. He, th- th- this God of heaven, this covenant-keeping God, he never fails. He always keeps his promises. He is the faithful one. He is trustworthy. He is honest. Move into verse 5, and he shows us that, Je- that Jehovah's loves are pure. In verse 5, he says that this, this Yahweh, this, this covenant-keeping God, loves righteousness and justice. The things that Yahweh loves, they're, they're just, it's just pure. It's good. The stuff that God loves is the stuff that makes us look at him and be like, man, that makes us love you more. The fact that you love what is good, you love righteousness, you love justice. You love things that are so good. And then in, at the end of verse 5, he said that Jehovah's grace fills the earth. 
It depends on the version that you have, but a lot of versions translate this word. It's uh, hesed, H-E-S-E-D, uh, transliterated into English. That, that Hebrew word means steadfast love. Uh, it's got a pretty broad range of the things that it holds within it. So steadfast love, the idea of goodness, and the idea of grace. It's a very, very rich word, hesed. That the, it, it, and he says it's filling the earth. It's just, it's everywhere. Like, once you put those glasses on, you see it everywhere. The grace of God fills the earth. And then he takes those ideas, the word of the Lord being right, the, word, the work of the Lord being faithful, the love of the Lord being so good, the grace of God filling the earth. And he just kind of elaborates in verses 6 through 12. And I'm not going to work through every one of those verses, but he uses basically two primary examples. One is creation, and the other is kind of the history of humanity. And he says, look, look at what God did in creation. It's incredible. With his word, he just spoke and this place came to be. And then he says, look at history. Look at the plans of man. Man's plans don't, don't, don't usually work out. But God is, God is in control. God, God, God has the, the history of the world under control. This, this is not spinning out of control. God, God, is, God is there. God is ever present. This one who is right and faithful and pure whose grace fills the earth. This is the, God, this is the God that we're invited to praise. The psalmist, in other words, is saying, just like, look at him. Look at him. You'll, you'll see why it's right for his people to praise him. Once you put those glasses on, you'll see why it's right to praise him. What a God. He is absolutely worthy of being praised. So these first 12 verses, they're making the case that the Lord is magnificent. That the Lord is, in a sense, beyond our, our ability to even uh, comprehend, worthy of our praise. Uh, John Calvin, about this text, uh, he said that the real meaning is that there is no exercise in which the people of God can be better deployed. That, that's not saying that it's the only thing we do, that praise is the only thing we do. It's just simply saying that praise of God is, it, it should flavor everything we do. It means that there is nothing better that we could do. It's not, it's not the only thing that we do. It's not that we sit in a room and sing 168 hours a week, but that the praise of God, this posture, this recognition of the glory and magnitude of God should flavor everything that we do. Now, maybe you agree with that. I mean, maybe you're like, yeah, no, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here early on a Sunday morning. I, I think that the praise of God is, is a right and good thing. Maybe you say amen to that. Maybe you read verse 12 and you say, yeah, blessed is the nation who does this. Blessed is, are the people whose, whose God is the Lord. But was that Israel? Like th this psalm was written at a specific time for a certain group of people. Was, was, was Israel a people whose, whose God is the Lord? Was that true of them? In, in some ways, the answer is a resounding yes. And in other ways, we have this tragic track record of Israel continually turning away from the Lord of heaven. Is it us? Are we a people whose God is the Lord? You know, maybe some of you, when you hear a verse like verse 12, are tempted to think, well, it isn't us now, but a couple generations ago, a couple generations ago, America, you know, back in the good old days, we were a nation whose God is the Lord. Well, 
I would just encourage you that before you hold up Israel, before you hold up yourself, before you hold up America back in the good old days, let, let, let's keep reading. Because what, what the psalmist now turns his attention to is, this is, this is the situation. It's right for the people of God to praise. Why is it right for them to praise? And then he says, well, let, let, let me show you what God sees when God looks down at the situation on, on earth. So why the people praise, but what the Lord sees. In verses 13 through 17, the Lord looks down from heaven. The psalmist says he sees, he looks, he observes. If you read through a handful of those verses, you'll, you'll, you'll see this continual uh, reference to the, the looking of God, the gazing of God, the observation of God. He's looking down on creation. What does he see? Well, what he sees is actually a problem. He sees humanity is focused on the wrong things. He sees that humanity is putting their hope in the wrong things. Instead of turning to this God, who the psalmist just celebrated in, in verses 6 through 12, we tend to put our hope in our own ability. We tend to put our, our hope namely in size, power, and resources. Look, look, look at verses 16 and 17. He talks about, the, you know, in verses 13, 14, 15, that God's looking down. He's observing all of creation. He's observing mankind. He, he, he's checking out what's going on on the earth. Verse 16, this is, what, this is the conclusion. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. In verse 16 and 17, he, he points to these three, these three categories. He says, the king tries to rally all of his armies. And so he, as the observation here is that the king tries to solve his problems with size. More. Get everybody. Round them all up. We'll, we'll take care of this. Let's get our army together. Let's get everybody. Let's pile it up. Size. Second half of verse 16, the warrior. What's the warrior try to do? The warrior tries to navigate life with his strength, with, with his power. He, he looks at his problems and it's like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Suck it up. Power through. The strength of the warrior. Third option, a war horse. What's a war horse? A war horse is a resource. A war horse is saying, okay, I don't think I have the, the, the capacity myself, but maybe there's a tool. Maybe there's some technology. Maybe there's a resource outside of me that I can get to solve my problems. Now, now to be clear, the psalmist is not saying that these things are bad things. The psalmist is not saying that an army is a bad thing. The psalmist is not saying that your strength is a bad thing. And the psalmist is not saying that your resources are bad things. Size, strength, resources, those, those are gifts from God. And one of the things that we, we try to remind ourselves of is that God gave us his gifts for us to enjoy his gifts. So, so your, your strength, like that's something you should, you should celebrate and you should thank God for giving you internal strength, physical strength in whatever ways. If you have people around you, if, if you have, uh, in, in a sense, your own armies, th those are good gifts from God to have voices in your life and people around you. That's a good gift. If you have resources, you know, one that comes to mind is the idea of medicine. 
Medicine's a great resource. And if you're going through a physical trauma, look, it would, that is a good gift from God. The psalmist is not saying that the king's army, the warrior's strength, or the war, that they're bad things. What he's saying is, how, how do you interact with them? What, what are you doing with them? Maybe you could get a little deeper and say, how do you evaluate your life? How do you orient yourself to your life? Where do you find hope? You see, one of the experiences that maybe you can relate to is looking around and seeing other people and, and, and observing them and kind of concluding, boy, that person is full of hope. That person, like, it's like they're excited about today. They're excited about tomorrow. They're excited about the future. They, they, they must be, like, full of, of, of hope. But a lot of times, that hope is really a confidence that is in response to a set of current circumstances that are pretty good or that they expect to get better. And so they're, they're looking at their situation and they're actually saying, my, I, I'm, I'm happy about today because my life is pretty good. My career tra trajectory is looking really good. My marriage is in, is in good shape. My kids are hanging in there. My, 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 my opportunities are, are, are growing. And a lot of people can have a posture of hope or an appearance of hope, but it's really rooted in some current circumstances that are causing them to say, yeah, things are good. But what happens when those circumstances change for the worse? What happens when that rug is pulled out from under you? And if you haven't had that happen to you yet, you just have not been around long enough. Because that day comes for all of us. What do you do then? Well, honestly, in some ways, Psalm 33 is telling you, you know. You know what you do. Because this dynamic is not just true for other people. This dynamic is true for us too. What is the hardest thing in your life? What's the heaviest thing in your life? The psalmist is inviting us to say, as you consider that, what are you turning to? What, what, what's your hope in that situation? It's one of the reasons why the Bible is consistently showing us that suffering reveals where our real hope is. It's why the psalmist is pointing out these things that we think can keep us safe or the things that we think can rescue us out of our tough situations. How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to difficulty? How do you respond when the good circumstances are nowhere to be found? Verses 16 and 17. saying that this is typically what we do. This is what we do. We try to gather up more size, beat it with size. We, we try to you know, pull, up our, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and do it with our, our own strength, power through. Or we try to reach outside, get, get some resources brains, you know, money, technology, medicine. Maybe we combine some of these things. The psalmist is saying, as God looks at the earth, he's seeing us trying to solve our, our situation with all of these various items. Size, strength, resources. The psalmist, God's opinion, God knows that we look in all of these places and he is directly correcting our perspective. 
You see the phrases? It says that the king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. You see, these are our tendencies, but, but the psalmist is recording for us this, this reality. He's, he's pulling the covers off, and he's saying they don't work. They're, they're not going to provide what you most need. And again, he's not saying that those things themselves are bad. He's saying they cannot provide for you what you are churning to them to provide. Our usual fixes don't work. They, they won't work. Not ultimately. If we're honest, we know that some of our trials are simply unstoppable. In this section of Psalm 33, I think it's right that I, I, I have read, emailed, texted this passage to, to more people than any other passage in the Bible. And one of the reasons is, is from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, I, I, I see it as this, this invitation to, like, to pull the covers off of our false hopes and to, and to reorient us. I just most recently texted this to, to Dominic Favara, who is, a, one of, one, a, who is a sojourner who is diagnosed with a, a very uh, aggressive form of cancer. And I texted to him, and about two weeks after I texted to him, uh, Dominic, Dominic went to be with Jesus. And as I, as I got to, a chance to, to uh, read it with his family before, before Dominic died, it, it served this very purpose of saying, these are, these are good things, size and power and resources. They're not bad things. But can they really carry the day? Can they really bring the hope that we so desperately need? No, no, we need something more. We need something deeper. Something that stands in spite of our circumstances. And Psalm 33 has a suggestion. Verse 18 through 22, where true hope is actually found. Look at verse 18. So the king and his army, the warrior and his strength, the war horse, none of that's going to work. Verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. The psalmist says, behold, look, look at what God is able to do. He says, look again at who God is and what God is doing in the world. Verse 18 is telling us that God is watching his children, that, that those who hope in his love. You know, the, the term righteous that shows up a couple times in this text, the term righteous is intensely relational. When, when it talks about righteousness in regard to God and people, it's saying that you're right with God. That this sense of righteousness means we're right, we're good, are we all right? And God says there are, there are people who are right with me through Christ. That, that, that there's this, this way in which you can be brought into right relationship with God. And God, the psalmist wants us to see, is watching over his children, so much so that he will deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Now, two different things are being said here. Unlike armies, strength, and material resources, our Father in heaven is able to keep our souls from death. Now, the psalmist is talking about eternal death. Could God keep our bodies from physical death? Well, sure he could. But this is talking about the fact that God keeps our souls from eternal death. Death means separation. Eternal death means eternal separation. And the psalmist says, you, you, buckle up. This God that we're talking about, he can keep your soul from eternal 
death. Secondly, God can also do something with his kids that can actually be really scary, but should fill us with incredible hope. The psalmist says that he can keep us alive even in the famine. Now, if you, if you spend some time thinking about these verses, I, I think you might say, man, could we just tweak that a little bit and like have God get rid of the famine? Like what if God just got rid of the famine? How about that? That'd be a little bit more enjoyable, wouldn't it? I would like to get rid of the famine. But that's not what it says. It says that he can keep you alive in the famine. The famine's supposed to wipe you out. The famine's supposed to kill you. But the psalmist says that God can enter into the famine when the resources are all shot, and he can actually keep you alive in the famine. Times where you don't think you can go on. Times where you might feel all alone and size is completely out. Where you might feel like you don't have another ounce of strength. That's all gone. Where the resources you've tried have all failed. It feels like a famine. And the psalmist says, God can keep you alive in the famine. Even when you think there's no hope, God provides hope. And you can see why that's hope-giving. This is saying that even when there's nothing left, God still has you. Well, how do these truths impact the psalmist's approach to life? Look at verses 20 through 22. The psalmist, look at, it, look at how he lives his life. His soul waits. His heart is glad. Patience, rest, joy, contentment, even in hardship. Do you notice that there's no indication that his circumstances changed? None. What changed is his perspective. Verse 18 says, behold, look at this. The psalmist is beholding God. The psalmist wants us to behold God. See those words that he uses, the word for soul and the word for heart. They, they are different Hebrew words, but they're referring to basically the same thing. And it's talking about the inner man. In verse 15, we see that God fashions or creates the heart of all people. That means that God knows what's going on in the deepest part of you. He knows you better than you know you. Have you considered that trying to find your hope in size, in power, in resources, or anything else might not be the place to look for real hope? Have you asked yourself, why are you hoping in what you're hoping in? God knows why, even if you don't know why. And he's inviting you to turn and to behold him, to turn and look at him, to wait on him, to find gladness in him. He is your true help and shield. So he says in verse 20, infinitely better than any military protection or physical strength or war horse. He is where real hope is found. Well, the psalmist ends in verse 22, just like he started in verse 20, saying that our hope is fueled by God's love for us more than by our love for God. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. He's saying, it's not about what we're giving you. It's about what we desperately need you to give to us. We are in desperate need of your love pouring onto us. Do, do you struggle with that? 
It, it is really easy to think that the way to find hope is to have a resume that demonstrates how much you love God or, or how much you obey God and then to rest in that. But the psalmist says you've got it backwards. Our job is to fear. Our job is, is to hope. Our job is to wait. Our job is to trust. In, in other words, check out God's resume. Check it out. And the psalmist has incredible things to say, but guess what? <laughs> it gets better. Psalm 33 was written um, about 3,000 years ago. And when it was written, the people of God were waiting. They were in a, in a, in a season of waiting. They had been waiting actually for thousands of years even at that point. And they were waiting for God to keep this promise of sending a rescuer, of sending a savior, of sending a Messiah. And they walked by faith, trusting that God would indeed send that Messiah, that he would send a Messiah to save them. Their hope was that God, who had been proven fully trustworthy, fully faithful, as we read in verse 4, that that God would soon deliver them in the only way that really mattered. And boy, did he ever. See, we, we sit in a seat where we look back and we see that the Messiah has already come, that God already kept that promise. But when Psalm 33 was written, they were looking forward and trusting that God would keep the promise. And he did way more than anybody thought. God sent his own son, not to just come conquer foreign armies that were oppressing Israel, but he actually came to save the people the people of the world, to save their souls. Jesus lived the life. When he showed up, he lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we deserve to die. Do you see this? Do you behold this? God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ, God's own son, died for us. Sin separates. This death that the psalmist says God can rescue you from is this reality of eternal separation from the one who created you. And what we know as the story of the Bible unfolds is that Jesus came and died so that our souls could be delivered from eternal death. This is the help. This is the shield that verse 20 points to. And this is the resume of God. This is the steadfast love of the Lord on, dis on display. Look, in closing, let me just say this. It is understandable, especially when you are in a trial, that you would doubt God's goodness. Look, it's not only understandable, it's probably the most logical conclusion to doubt his goodness. That, that is completely understandable. But that is exactly why the psalmist wants to remind us of God's gaze upon us. Of, of God seeing us, of his love pouring upon us. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. Does that sound familiar? Some of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. Numbers 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Listen, you and I need the gaze of God upon us. And it is available. And it is available for free, bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. All you have to do is turn to it. And that's where we find true hope. God's love for us poured out in Christ. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for this psalm, Psalm 33, this, this precious psalm. And God, for some of us, maybe it's a, a, a stark realization that our hope has been in some other resource. We've, we've been looking to some other thing to give us hope for our situation, hope for our life. And God, we thank you for your many good gifts. We're, we're experiencing many of those good gifts right now. Friendship, uh, uh, facilities, air conditioning. God, so, so many good gifts. We thank you for those. But would you never help us, would you help us to never get lulled to sleep? To never get deceived into thinking that resources or size or power could ever rescue us in the way that we truly need? Would you help us to, to see you? Would you help us to realize that your gaze is upon us? That your love is poured out in the person of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.